Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with very special guest, Taylor Pearson. Taylor is an author, entrepreneur, and investor, and here we're, we're here today to talk about markets are eating the world. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, great to be here, Eric. So, so Taylor, why don't you give a, before getting into the thesis, why don't you give some quick background on how you came to the thesis and how you got excited about it in the first place? Yeah, so I think that with thinking about sort of how the markets are eating the world idea starting to get into my head. Really, I think part of it was, um, I think 2008, sort of the financial crisis and all that was a very formative, formative event on me just in terms of sort of understanding more how the world worked. I had, you know, no finance background at that point, uh, understood basically nothing about markets and was sort of, you know, in lifetime trying to, to understand what was going on there. And I think, you know, like many people, you know, of our generation sort of felt like, uh, this wasn't like the fair shakedown and there was like lots of backroom sort of dealing going on. And so I think the kind of idea of just individual agency uh, and giving people more sort of control and, and, you know, freedom, whatever word you want to use, sovereignty sort of became important to me. And I saw that that, that was lacking in a lot of ways. And so I think that was sort of the, uh, the impetus. I think, um, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a tech person uh, in high school uh, or college or anything like that. And so I think part of that, you know, starting to see the role of um, markets on the internet, um, what, you know, what markets made possible there. Uh, I think the idea of, you know, software eating the world, internet eating the world, um, started to see the idea of these, the possibility of being able to start uh, a small business, run a small business or start a startup and sort of how that was technology enabled in a way that gave sort of more agency to individuals seemed really, really powerful to me. And so that was my, sort of my previous book talking about that trend. And so I've, I've kind of been uh, continually fascinated by sort of how technology enables uh, or can enable agency, greater self-sovereignty for individuals. And your previous book, of course, uh, End of Jobs, which you, you wrote a few years ago. Yeah, that's right. Before we get into marketing the world, what, when you talk about sort of the main thesis of, of that book and, and what's happened since that book was written, like how would you, you write that book differently today? So the basic idea was that the, the internet has changed the possible space of careers and uh, it's really broadened it in a lot of ways. So, you know, so I can sort of tie this into to the idea of uh, marketing in the world. One of my first jobs um, out of college, I worked for an e-commerce company uh, in California um, that manuf- we manufactured in China. Uh, we had a web team uh, in uh, Asia and Europe, Southeast Asia and Europe. Uh, we had an office in California. Uh, we had distribution across North America. Uh, and this was like, you know, at the time I, I joined something like a 12 or 15 person company. And that was just like really fascinating to me that a company that small could operate at, at that scale. Uh, and that was like very much technology enabled. You know, when you go, went from, you know, literally faxing back and forth schematics to China, uh, to being able to do, you know, a Skype call where you could like look through the design. Uh, that was like a huge deal, you know, minimum order quantities in China for manufacturing have come down uh, sort of dramatically over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. So it's kind of the idea you talk about this, like the long tail that was enabled by the internet, um, sort of these new platforms that enabled these new small businesses. That sort of dynamic was, was what I was looking at and kind of how people can take advantage of that and 
and adjust their careers accordingly. Let's get into the markets eating the world thesis. Why don't you walk us through it a bit? Yeah, so the yeah, I mentioned sort of like the end of jobs and thinking about how the internet sort of affected uh, the space of careers. You know, I started going back and, and thinking more and sort of doing more research and reading uh, about that and um, got into the work of the world of sort of transaction cost economics. Um, particularly, there's a, a famous paper um, called The Theory of the Firm by an economist named Ronald Coase uh, that looks at, you know, sort of the question of the paper is like, you know, if, if markets are so efficient and they're these amazing things, why do we have these uh, these firms that are kind of like these planned socialist uh, hierarchies in a way, you know, there's no, you don't bargain, you don't enter a market with someone that's working in the same company. You just kind of, you know, try to do the best by each other. And um, everyone sort of does a, you know, f- shares resources in a more shared way. And so his answer is kind of like transaction cost. Um, the example I always think of is like, you know, theoretically, and then I have 50 emails in my inbox right now. Uh, there is someone that is more qualified to answer each of those emails than I am. But in practice, the transaction costs are going out of the market. So the, the big three sort of categories are um, triangulation costs. So, you know, in the case of email, finding the person that's more qualified, um, transfer costs, so like, you know, negotiating the terms uh, and arranging for payment, and then, you know, enforcement costs. You know, can I enforce the terms of that contract uh, if it's not carried through? You know, in practice, those are just so uh, prohibitively high that it's easier for, for me to just answer my email myself. And so you, you see that sort of same dynamic play out in firms. So the idea behind um, market treating the world is that as these transaction costs uh, come down, it, it increases the area where markets can be efficient. So, you know, starting sort of thinking about software uh, and the internet, there's lots of uh, markets that are now made possible uh, because of the internet. You know, I buy stuff off Amazon from random companies in countries that I, you know, where I have no legal recourse uh, because I know that there's some, they're enforcing there's certain terms of doing business with Amazon that Amazon is able to enforce. And if I get like a crummy product, I know I can return it and they'll, they'll sort it out. So that's, that's sort of a new mutually beneficial exchange that just wouldn't have happened previously. And obviously there's all, you know, that's sort of the enforcement side, but obviously the, the whole search, search cost triangulation costs is a big piece of that too, right? I can go on Amazon or Google or whatever, you know, we have a whole industry named search now, uh, it's very easy to to find those sorts of um, hyper specific products. Where in in a more like geographically constrained world, uh, it's not possible to do that. And so, you know, sort of expanding from there into the the more of the marketry in the world thesis is thinking about um, you know where where else could transaction cost come down, um, and sort of what what might some of the implications be. So most of my thinking about that over the last few years has been in sort of the blockchain crypto space. Um, and like the role that plays with transaction cost. Let's get into it. Where else could transaction cost come down, and and how how might that occur? Going back to these big big three categories: triangulation cost, transfer cost, uh, and trust cost. The internet did a lot to lower um, sort of the first two: the the triangulation and the the transfer cost. You know, particularly triangulation. Uh, a lot of transfer costs, I think, too. You know, the, the ability to do just online reviews. If you look at, you know, Airbnb or Uber, uh, you know, at first it was like, I'm not going to get in a car with a stranger. I'm not going to get in the house with a stranger. But, you know, someone has 50 five-star reviews uh, on an Airbnb or whatever. And you're like, and now, you know, most people don't bet not. You know, that's fine. I'm sure it's okay. However, you know, you you still had that sort of trust component. You know, do you trust uh, whoever the third party is that's sort of overseeing uh, that transaction? So, you know, I think the 
you know, one of the many interesting things about, about Bitcoin as sort of the first public blockchain cryptocurrency uh, was that you were able to, to get that trust without having sort of a single uh, or small group of, of trusted third parties um, that you were relying on. You were able to uh, use, you know, a combination of cryptography and economic incentives to establish trust without having, um, having that sort of third party risk. And so I think that, that opens up some new areas in terms of um, the impacts of markets. So like just to start with, uh, with Bitcoin, you know, you can have two people, you know, someone from Albania can send money to someone in Nigeria and they are able to enforce the terms of that contract um, in this, you know, whatever simple uh, spot transaction or simple uh, Bitcoin transaction through the security guarantees uh, of the Bitcoin protocol and not through uh, any sort of traditional intermediary, whether that's, you know, a government internet platform or whatever. And so that's, that's a very novel, novel thing. And I think that will be extendable to some degree in some directions. And sort of, I'm still thinking through, you know, to what extent that's extendable and sort of in what directions that's going. Let's say more, what what directions is it going and what what could that look like? Yeah. I mean, so I think the DeFi uh, decentralized finance kind of whole thesis is interesting which is which is basically an extension of that, right? It's like, okay, you know, we can think of a Bitcoin transaction as a, as a very simple contract or a very simple smart contract. You know, if I sign this transaction with my with my private key, then send the transaction to whatever the other uh, public key or address that I specified is. Um, and so I think the idea with, you know, maybe start, you know, if you think about like a multi-sig transaction is just like a, uh, a slightly more complex version of that, uh, where you're able to sort of enforce a contract in a way that you couldn't do previously. So, you know, like for example, if you had a, uh, you could have a Bitcoin multi-state contract that functioned as sort of like a will that if, you know, two of the three heirs uh, signed the contract, you know, transfers the assets to the other person. And that's not reliant upon, uh, again, any sort of like trusted third party, right? You're relying on whatever the security guarantees of the Bitcoin protocol are. And so I think the, the DeFi thesis is sort of like the next step in that. You know, I think Uniswap is an interesting example I've been thinking about lately that, you know, it's, it's an exchange. It's, it's, a, it's a decentralized exchange. There's no, it sort of made a market there um, without requiring sort of a trusted third party to oversee it. And so, you know, what does it look like or in what ways, you know, is that market extendable where people can start to build on top of Uniswap protocol and they can trust that, you know, sort of the rules aren't going to get changed. There's nothing, there's no one to sort of pull the rug out front of them or change the, um, the terms of how that that contract is written. I think the my sort of my questions with with DeFi and sort of these more robust smart contract protocols in general is just uh, you know related to security. That when you have when you have stateful smart contracts like Ethereum smart contracts as opposed to stateless smart contracts like Bitcoin, you, you have a lot more sort of eventualities. Those um, the potential outcomes are much more robust, and so it's a lot harder to control and manage for all those. So I think how how that evolves over the next few years, I think will determine a lot of sort of the, the extent to which that happens and sort of at what pace. And can you uh, ex- explain for the audience that may not be familiar with the stateful Ethereum example versus the stateless Bitcoin example and, and how you think that could play out? I'm, I'm not a technical person, so I, I get it in a little over my head. My, my understanding of it is you know, Bitcoin uh, contracts hold no uh, internal state. And so you tend to have fewer possible outcomes. And so you can, uh, you can more, you can, it's much easier to sort of evaluate the, 
um, the possible outcomes of that contract. And I think like the example of, of stateful smart contracts when we think about Ethereum hacks is, you know, like no, no hack per se is actually a hack, right? The, the smart contract always behaves precisely as the smart contract was written. Uh, you know, in all the cases that we call hacks, like the DAO hack that happened, uh, the parity bug, it was actually just that the person writing that smart contract did not understand uh, all the possible, nor, nor all the people auditing it understood all the possible uh, eventualities for how things could could play out. And so you got an outcome that no one, no one actually that entered in the contract thought that was a possible outcome or one of that is an outcome, but the, the level of complexity there was just so high that you, you couldn't, you couldn't really effectively sort of, sort of audit. So I think, you know, the extent to which that becomes, you know, people become better at writing and auditing those contracts and whether the security guarantees of the underlying blockchain are enough to sort of enforce those contracts. Or, you know, if, if we end up in a world that's more, more focused on sort of stateless contracts where you don't have sort of the robustness in terms of um, all the different functionality, but you, you have a lot stronger security guarantees. And I guess that's, that's my, my bias more that, you know, less, uh, you know, if you're using a blockchain, what you really want is you want that security guarantee. Um, and so most people, you know, in most cases you're willing to give up some, uh, or you're not willing to give up the security, you're willing to give up some sort of functionality or robustness. What's going to determine whether which approach becomes more mainstream? Uh, that's a good question. I, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think like uh, if a lot of these these sort of DeFi protocols grow larger in terms of the assets under management uh, and appear to be robust, then you know I think they'll you know, that certainly. I guess the way I think about it is uh, in terms of an idea called the um, uh, the selectorate spectrum. So there's a, a political economist named um, Bruce Bennett of Mosquito. I think he's at NYU, uh, and he has a, a very funny book called The Dictator's Handbook, which is sort of a tongue-in-cheek how to be a good dictator. He develops this idea of selectorate theory, which is basically if you want to be a, a good dictator, what you want to have is you want to have the smallest possible selectorate or the group of people that sort of exert power over you. So if you're a dictator, what you want to have is you want to have sort of six warlords each controlling their part of the country. And then whenever you want them to do something, you can like get them all in one room uh, and coerce them or threaten to kill their families or whatever. And the, you know, the way most constitutional democracy is structured, right, is you, you have a much broader selectorate. You have, you know, people that are voting, you have, uh, you know, the whole idea of checks and balances. It's, it's much more difficult for uh, a president to come in and sort of coerce, coerce the larger selectorate because it's just harder to coordinate a bunch of people. And so, you know, compared to dictator, it's, it's sort of much easier to, to engage in that, that coercion and, and get people to do what you want, what you want them to do. I think what this sort of selectorate uh, trade-off is you get um, sort of trust or, you know, call it robustness on, on one end and efficiency or functionality on the other. And so, you know, if you're a dictator, you can just get a lot more done um, because you don't have to deal with, you know, people sort of complain in the United States about, you know, how little Congress gets done and how nothing's effective. And like, in a sense, that's by design, right? You know, nothing gets done in sort of the, the negative way as well as in the positive way. It's, it's, it's equally inefficient uh, in sort of uh, every direction in a way. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, dictators can be uh, much more, much more efficient, though, you know, historically less robust, and, you know, that, that efficiency, uh, efficiency can be, you know, positive. If you look at like Singapore and Lee Kuan Yew and, and sort of the economic development happened there, like that probably wasn't feasible 
if he had had less power that like you probably needed sort of a centralized power structure in order to make that happen. So I think that's sort of the same trade-off spectrum you get with uh, smart contracts where on one end you have sort of more, more robust, more secure, more trustworthy, where there's sort of like less possible outcomes. And on the other end you have, you know, more efficiency, more functionality, but, you know, sort of at, at what cost? So I think that's, it's not clear. Like it's at some point along that spectrum, you know, for any given use case, it's presumably some sort of like optimal trade-off point, but I'm not sure what it is. So yeah, I think like the the analogy I think through sometimes is like, if you have a nuclear power plant, you want it to be extremely inefficient and extremely uh, robust or secure, right? So you have a backup generator to the backup generator to the backup generator. And, you know, the quadruple backup generator costs $20 million and is never turned on, but it's worth it because in the, you know, the one out of a 10 million chance that you get to the quadruple backup generator, you know, you don't want it to, to melt down the nuclear reactor and cause Chernobyl uh, or whatever. Uh, and then, you know, on the other side, if you look at like, you know, someone building a consumer web application, like it doesn't really matter if there's a bug in your like Twitter extension that like, does whatever because you know, it, it's not a it's not sort of like a mission critical thing. So like when I think about sort of like money and contracts, those tend to be more sort of like mission mission critical things. So sort of how much how much security can you trade off in terms of functionality in order to make that that robust. So I think somewhere along that spectrum is some sort of uh, optimal point. And I, I think you know depending on the use case and how things play out, we'll sort of see where those where those points are. Yep. And let's zoom back out and talk about the the role of the firm, how it's been viewed historically in the sense of if we have, you know, the markets are so great, why, why do firms exist? But then also what this means for, for the role of the firm looking forward and, and what the implications there might be. Yes, I mean, this sort of idea in terms of just seeing it from a transaction cost lens is that uh, as transaction costs come down, uh, you need firms less. Um, so like the, the sort of transaction cost you have things would be that, yeah, as, as you sort of have transaction costs come down and you can talk about this, like, you know, the idea of like a lifestyle business on the internet is basically a small business that's facilitated by reducing transaction costs because geography no longer matters. So, you know, you can run a niche, you know, high end cat furniture, uh, manufacturing company. Uh, on the internet, whereas you can't really do that. There's no, you know, there's no city in the world that has enough people that are willing to spend a thousand dollars on a litter box, uh, a, you know, a beautifully designed litter box for their cat. Uh, but like across the world on the internet, you know, there, there actually are like the, those sort of niches were basically made economically profitable by these reduced transaction costs. Or, you know, I think sort of you look at self-publishing and what's happened on Amazon, you have all these people that suddenly were able to build profitable careers as authors because you know just the the transaction cost that Amazon still say you all of a sudden you could find your readers without having to go through uh, a bookstore and print physical books and all, all that kind of stuff. So I think that that's sort of the the way I think about it in terms of the the effect in terms of corporations. I think there's lots of things you know like left out of the transaction cost concept or, you know, transaction costs that are accounted for, you know, I think culture is obviously a big one. Like you can't just sort of hire a, a freelancer or a contractor to come to a company and have them immediately be effective. There's like a huge amount of context, uh, cultural context um, that they sort of have to, that they sort of have to load up on. So I think there's, um, there's probably limits there that go sort of beyond just the, the transaction cost side of things. And can you give the, uh, the email example? Of uh, in terms of transaction costs, 
why they're so important in the past? Yeah. So, you know, I have 50 emails in my inbox. In theory, there is someone that is more specialized and capable of answering each of those emails than I am. You know, in practice, the transaction cost of going out into the market, uh, you know, I'm going to go to Upwork or whatever and try to find that person, uh, negotiate the contract with them, enforce that contract. Uh, it's just so prohibitively expensive that either a you know I answer it myself or people answer it myself or you know at some point you know maybe you you hire an executive assistant or someone that's full time to manage that and even though they're you know maybe they only work seventy five percent of the time it's still more efficient having them have some some slack or whatever than just to go out and and sort of engage in the, just having to hire someone from the market and pay all those transaction costs. Can you also give the the clock example to also show? How um, you change the transaction costs change how the economy is organized? Yeah, so there's a um, there's a great paper by Nick Zabo who wrote a lot about developed Bitcoin and sort of an early cryptocurrency pioneer, where he looks at the sort of the development of the mechanical clock. So if you go back to medieval Europe, um, most time was kept using sundials, and you would have sort of a bell tower in the center of the city where someone um, was in charge of like watching the sundial, and they would toll the bell you know, at, at particular times. So like daybreak, dusk, noon, church ceremony, special holidays, um, special visitors, that kind of thing. You know, the challenges with this are, one, you, you couldn't divide it into that many ways, right? You know, we want to organize a, a call or we want to organize a lunch meeting. You know, you can't have the belfry toll every little individual thing. Uh, you need to have sort of a more personal measure of time. Uh, two, I mean, sundials are sort of notoriously not particularly accurate. Um, you know, if you have a very cloudy day, uh, you can sort of mess up the time. And, and they're also sort of easier to uh, easier to cheat. So if you have a mechanical clock in the belfry that's running without someone overseeing it, uh, it's sort of a more fair, fungible measure of time. There used to be, you know, there would be fights between sort of feudal lords and people working on their property uh, saying that the feudal lord is bribing the person in the belfry to wait an extra 30 minutes um, to turn off the, or to, to dole for the, sort of the end of the workday because they want to get their people to work more and do extra stuff. So, you know, one of the things that mechanical clock enabled was sort of a change in the economic relationship, you know, from serfdom to something based on time rate wages because all of a sudden, uh, it was a lot easier to sort of agree on how we can measure that time. So, you know, now if, if you hire someone to come to your house and pressure wash your garage for an hour, you know, you can fight with them over whether the quality of the pressure washing is what you expected, but you're not, no one's going to argue over like whether or not they were there for an hour. Like that's a, it's a sort of, uh, it, there's a clear, clear agreement on that, that sort of fairness of the time. Um, and so the ability to then sort of use promotions, raises and firing to incentivize employees uh, and you know, people, employees having the option to be able to move um, to other jobs, trade their time to someone else if they think they can get a better deal, uh, all sort of necessitated uh, this having this sort of fair, fungible measure of time that the mechanical clock facilitated. Yeah, and it's interesting. We're even increasingly going from you know measuring time to measuring output, and this is what Naval talks a lot about: is you know you don't want to work in roles that that depend on you putting hours as much as you know you being able to put in hours and get leveraged work across across those hours. Right. I think what the internet did for direct marketing on the internet, you know, if you hire someone to manage your Facebook ads, like you don't know how much time they work, but if you, you know, you pay them 20 grand a month and they send you a hundred grand a month in sales, it's great. You know, they, like everyone's happy with that arrangement. 
it's like a great ROI. Maybe that takes them two hours a month. Maybe it takes them 40 hours a month. No one really cares uh, because it's very easy to track precisely sort of what their, their contribution is. And that, that seems to be happening to sort of more and more jobs. I'm curious, you know, this, of course, uh, the phrasing is inspired by Mark Andreessen's uh, phrase, you know, software is eating the world. Obviously, there's a lot of overlap. What are the overlap and differences between these two ideas? Like, could Mark, are they synonyms? Could Mark have said in 2012 or whatever, you know, markets are eating the world and it have had the same, you know, implications? Let's go deep on that. Yeah, I think, I guess I see software eating the world as a, as an example in which, uh, market dreaming world, I guess, particularly like software or platforms, right? Like the idea of, of a marketplace is like a very clear idea of, of a marketing the world that you're able to make a market uh, in an area where you couldn't previously make a market because transaction costs were too high. Um, you know, like Upwork is an example, the fact that they're, they're making a market, it's a marketplace. That's literally um, what they're doing. But I think sort of like the idea of marketing the world as I sort of have, have started thinking about it is, is broader than that in the sense of like, you can go back very much like pre-software and this trend was still going on. You know, the, the role of markets in, you know, say whatever, 1960, 1970, before software was really very widespread was like still pretty significant. So, you know, like in, in a way like specialization of labor um, was sort of the first example of, of market during the world. And now you have all this, this more highly specialized labor that's evolved over sort of the culture of the industrial revolution. People are engaging trade with each other and that's making a market in that that specialization is more uh, you know economically advantageous than having everyone make you know all their own clothes and grow their own food and and all that kind of stuff and then I think you know going beyond uh, market in the world going sort of beyond software in the world in the future obviously like marketplaces are are an ongoing thing and I'm sure like the role of marketplaces uh, will increase over time but also sort of you know other other examples much in the world I think you know talk about Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency and smart contracts and and all that. I think that's another example, which is which is maybe sort of tied into the software seeing the world idea, and then you know also sort of what that facilitates more broadly. I mean, the term marketing the world" that was coined by um, Patrick Friedman. Um, I sort of uh, borrowed it with his permission, uh, but he's done a lot of work on sort of seasteading, special economic zones, uh, ways in which sort of markets are getting introduced into uh, markets for for governance effectively. Let's get into that, but, but, but just to close the point, is markets eating the world a subset of software eating the world or vice versa? Or, or yeah, I see it vice versa. Software eating the world is a subset of, of markets eating the world, but it's probably the, it's the subset that is most relevant to our times. Right. And in, in, and in some ways also, uh, software eating the world, like not all software is markets, or is it? Like there is, is some of the software you know, eating the world not market-based, or is, is that not the case? Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I, certainly, yes, like, you know, whatever Microsoft Word or Excel is like not, does not create a, uh, uh, create, there's not, that's not a marketplace or whatever, but obviously, like, those are widely used software applications. So, yeah, I, I think there, there are certainly ways in which, like, soft, you know, software is in the world that's not, not necessarily an example of markets. But yeah, I, I, I'd have to think more about that. I haven't thought deeply about it. Right. Let's get into the role of, of governments here, because you talked about sort of the role of the, of the firm. Um, what is the role of governments here as it, as it relates to markets and, and markets eating the world, and how might that evolve? So, like, you know, historically, the role of the justification for sort of government intervention in the economy is like some sort of market failure argument. 
Um, so like the three major ones that I'm aware of are sort of like asymmetric information. You know, one party knows something that the other party doesn't and they're withholding it. And so you need some sort of regulatory agency, like the idea I was reading a bit about the Securities Act of 1934, which was like mainly pushed through by senators from rural districts because, uh, you know, farmers were basically getting sold uh, all these like scam snake oil things and were like losing all the money that they'd saved up from their farms. Uh, and so, you know, there's sort of like a principal agent problem here where, you know, the farmer didn't really understand what was going on, you know, what exactly they were buying and they were, they were sort of getting fleeced out of their money. Others, like some, some form of externality. So like uh, pollution, being the most common example, right? Like a factory could be profitable, but they're only able to be profitable because they're dumping, you know, toxic sludge into the river. Um, that's not being, you know, that's not being accounted for uh, by the market. And then the third one being some form of like mon- market power, like monopoly, you know, and maybe standard oil is the best example, but basically the, you know, some companies able to have so much of the market share that they're able to drive everyone else out of business. And there's, there's sort of like no competitive dynamic to, to keep that firm, in check. So I think that I, that when I think about sort of like what the role of government is, markets that make sense, those are sort of the three major ones. And how do you expect that to evolve in, in a world where markets continue to eat the world? Yeah, I think what, you know, to, to take them sort of in turn, I think, you know, asymmetric information, certainly making information digital uh, reduces some of that asymmetry. Like one of the interesting thought experiences, like, you know, what, what would 2008 have been like had instead of all these being you know all these um, collateralized debt obligations and mortgage-backed securities, you know, if they weren't paper contracts but they were digital contracts, and you could audit them with uh, you know you could write a Python script to, to go through and like audit those. Like, how would that have been caught earlier? Like, could it have been monitored better? Like, you you know by making that information digital, um, you reduce sort of some of the um, the asymmetry here. So I think you know in areas where that is the case, there's sort of less of a reason for. Uh, government intervention because sort of making that information more symmetrical evens out the takes away that sort of inefficiency. Um, and then I, I guess, you know, externalities and, and market power. I'm not sure that sort of the idea of like marketry in the world affects either of those so much. I think going back to the idea of special economic zones or just like call it competitive governance as sort of more and more people or you know, it, assuming more and more people sort of take advantage of that, uh, that people are willing to sort of like move jurisdictions, you get sort of an increasing, some increasing level of competition between uh, between governments that if someone is able to leave one country and move to another country, then, you know, d- those governments sort of uh, sort of start to compete. And again, like I think, you know, making things more digital um, makes that possible. You know, the example I always think of is like, you know, Henry Ford's factory in Dearborn, Michigan. He couldn't like pick that up and move that to another country. Uh, there was like a huge amount of fixed cost uh, in setting that up. But, you know, I think like what Binance has done over the last few years has been interesting. I think they've moved jurisdictions uh, at least twice uh, maybe more, and uh, that's that's possible because it's a it's a software company. Like it doesn't matter if you're uh, you know you're logging in to uh, update the program from you know Malta or Hong Kong or wherever. So I think that you know the software plays a role there. So th- I mean, there's a version of the world, the Patrick Friedman version of the world, where uh, we get you know competitive governance and we get charter cities and more sort of local experiments. And then there's all, uh, and more decentralization. And then there's also the the China view of the world, where it's the exact opposite. It's increasing uh, centralization, increasing surveillance. Uh, talk, talk about the, the the two competing uh, visions and how that could play out. 
Yeah, I, I'm not a I'm not a China expert. I've been trying to get up to speed more and more and, and sort of understand. I guess the way I sort of think about that dynamic is at the end of the day, like what what kind of drives history? I would say sort of my my view is that uh, I would call myself something like a soft technological determinist. So I think mostly it's technology uh, that drives history. And so if you can sort of look at the logic of the technology and play that out, that those are sort of the those are sort of the way trends will will play out. I think that the Chinese view is more um, something like cultural determinism that, you know, fundamentally culture is what drives, what drives history. And, you know, Chinese culture is, you know, if you go back even two or three thousand years, the sort of the doc, my understanding of sort of the doctrine of like legalism in China uh, sort of talks about, you know, for, Chinese have had very strong central states for a very long time you know, it, at least going back a couple thousand years, certainly with periods of uh, of weak central states. And so, you know, to what extent is that sort of ingrained in Chinese culture and how powerful is that and how does that sort of intersect with the technology? Yeah, I, I'm not, it's not clear to me exactly sort of what that looks like. I think if you went back and 10 or 15 years ago, like you had lots of people that were saying like, oh, China's not letting all these companies into, you know, across their borders. And, you know, they have their own version of Twitter uh, and all that kind of stuff. And that's going to hold them back technologically. And like, that doesn't really seem to have happened. You know, you can't really, you can't run the Monte Carlo simulation of like how it would have happened differently had they done it. But, but certainly like China has made pretty significant advances in terms of, uh, you know, it's tech sector and technology companies. So I, that, I, that, that's the way I think about the dynamic, though I don't really have any, any clear idea of how that dynamic plays out. Could you say that the U.S. is just as culturally driven as China, except it's culturally driven in the opposite way, which is towards uh, democracy, towards uh, globalization, towards sort of this ever-inclusive and decentralized approach? Yeah, I think you could. I'd, uh, I guess the person I think about when I when I sort of think through all this stuff is um, Francis Fukuyama, who was sort of most famously wrote a paper at the when the Berlin Wall fell called uh, the end of history. But uh, I think 2010 as she published uh, sort of a two series book. The first one's called The Origins of Political Order, and he sort of looks, you know, he, he directly compares sort of the Chinese system versus uh, the English system that eventually became the American system, and and you know you can go back you know, certainly a thousand years, probably longer than that. And, you know, by the, the English system, uh, the cultural system, the idea of, you know, common law and that evolving over time, uh, even compared to like continental European law was, yeah, it was much more decentralized. It was much more focused on the individual. You know, a, a lot of that was driven by Christianity, that one of the things that uh, seems to have been different about the, the Christian churches in Europe, as opposed to uh, what was going on in China was that there were sort of weaker kinship groups uh, in Europe. And that was sort of advantageous to the church because instead of people passing their property down to uh, their kinship groups, they would pass it down to the church and the church could accumulate, you know, more land. And at its peak, the Catholic church owned, I don't know what percentage of Europe, but a pretty, you know, they had a pretty significant land holding. So yeah, I think there's, there's clearly a cultural element there and a cultural element that goes back like fairly far and fairly deep in history. Yeah. Let's get um, to the investment implications. So what would a VC fund with the markets in the world thesis look like in terms of what it'd be interested in investing in and what, what it would sort of request for startups would be? Uh, yes, yeah, so I mean, you mentioned sort of like the idea of C-setting special economic zones. I think that's, that's an interesting component of the thesis. Um, I think just thinking about like, what is, the, what is the increased role of marketplaces? So, you know, are we, are we at the point where sort of the, the marketplace uh, thing is is saturated and there's not a lot of space left there, or or in fact, you know, is there a lot lot more than I think? Some of that will probably be unlocked by 
buy new tech. You know, the example um, I got from Mike Munger, who's an economist at, at Duke that's written a lot about transaction cost is, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, once you have self-driving cars, you can all of a sudden have markets uh, in a lot uh, sort of cheaper, smaller price goods that if I want to get a uh, fruit dehydrator and I just want to use it for two days to make some fruit for a camping trip and I can just, uh, I can, you know, whatever, go onto the app and say like, I want this self-driving car, whatever it's in between Uber rides to drop off a fruit dehydrator at my house and pick it up 40 hours later and I'll pay, you know, whatever the rental thing is. Cause I don't want, I don't really want to own a fruit dehydrator cause I only use it uh, once a year. So those sort of like those sort of new um, tech advantage. I think like voice is also sort of an interesting one, like AirPods and Amazon Echo and uh, Alexa and like what's, what's happening there. Like are there like sort of marketplace opportunities there? I don't have any specific ideas, but it seems like an interesting space. Um, I think one kind of boring, but in a lot of way, logical way to play out the thesis is uh, just to own Bitcoin that, you know, what's your, Part of, one way to look at sort of the Bitcoin investment thesis is just, uh, you know, you're betting on there being a competitive market uh, for money. That if you have, you know, all the the major central banks in their world that uh, manage the monetary policy very well, then Bitcoin is kind of useless, uh, and there's no real reason to develop a competitive market uh, for money. But if you know if that fails to be the case, then then Bitcoin or something like Bitcoin, that digital gold kind of thesis is interesting. Um, and then, you know, also I think the, the DeFi thesis is interesting. This idea of being able to do, you know, public blockchain based, uh, smart contracts where the trust mechanism is not an individual third party, but sort of guaranteed by the underlying rules of the, of the blockchain is, is really interesting. I think like the long tail of finance is kind of one of the ways I thought about it. Like, you know, we had sort of a long tail of retail. We have a long tail of media. You know, we're talking on a podcast right now um, you know, that's, that's enabled by sort of new technology. So, you know, what would it look like for there to be a long tail of, uh, of finance where you're able to sort of convert a lot of uh, traditional financial services into, into markets. Uh, and then, you know, that goes back to what we talked about earlier, you know, to what extent, um, to what extent those markets are effective, you know, maybe, maybe we're two years away from that. Maybe we're 20 years away from that. Maybe that never comes, but I think that's a, that's another area that's interesting. Totally. There's this business theory um, around legibility. That's, that's pretty interesting in terms of, you know, what Uber and Airbnb and lots of other great businesses did is they took information that, that wasn't illegible, that wasn't on the internet and that's really valuable and, and made it. So, and you have your own sort of post you wrote about the illegible, Eligibility premium. Talk, talk a little bit about the ideas behind uh, legibility and how you think that relates to business. Yeah, so the idea of legibility comes from um, a Yale professor named James C. Scott who wrote a book called Seeing Like a State that, yeah, I think has, has gotten kind of popular in, in tech circles. And he's actually, I think his background is he's an East Asian early agriculture specialist, something like super, super unique like that. But in Seeing Like a State, he kind of talks about uh, the question is sort of like, you know, why have, why have so many grand utopian visions uh, failed over the last hundred years or, or in the 20th century? And, you know, those failures have been like equally present on sort of both the more capitalist rightist side and, and sort of the, the leftist socialist side. Um, so like the example he gives going back further that I like is this idea of um, German forestry. So in the 18th century, maybe 19th century, uh, Germany sort of coming together as a nation state. 
They decide they uh, need to have sort of a forestry department because they want to be able to sort of guarantee uh, the quantity and quality of timber that's produced in Germany each year because this has uh, ramifications for the country. People need to be able to heat their homes. They need to be able to build new homes. You're going to be able to build warships to protect the country. Um, so you know, having some sort of consistent and growing uh, level of timber produced each year had you know national security ramifications and all these national implications. So they set up this forestry department uh, and the thing they found is they went out to sort of survey all these uh, forests across Germany and try and determine, you know, how much timber there was and how fast it was regrowing and how much they could harvest. Uh, And it was like really hard because the way forests naturally grow is you have uh, lots of different species of trees, you have lots of underbrush, uh, you know, the species of trees are, are usually mixed in groves. So, you know, you might have a beech grove and then an oak grove uh, and so to do this as sort of a, um, from a central planning perspective, top down and survey is, is very, very difficult. So they're like, okay, we'll just cut all this down and we'll plant, we'll plant all the same type of trees at the same time and we'll plant them in rows. Uh, and then it'll be very, we can, we can get very precise about, you know, exactly how many trees, you know, on this acre, uh, we have, you know, 800 trees and they were planted 10 years ago. And on average, their size is, is X. And so they would yield this much timber. And for about, maybe 50, 70 years, this was like a really successful uh, system. The quantity of timber went up every year. It was very easy to monitor. Um, they could plan around it. And then what happened is um, the German word is Walter Staben, but basically forest death. So, you know, it, it turned out that um, there was a very complex set uh, of illegible processes going on in these these old growth forests, you know, between the fungi and how the fungi interacted with the roots of some of the trees that protected them from certain viruses and, um, you know, all these sorts of complex sort of feedback loops that, that let the forest stay healthy in the long term that, that wasn't obvious to sort of the surveyor walking through the forest trying to figure out exactly how it, how it works. So um, I guess the way I've, I've thought about this in terms of like business is yeah, it, it can be very powerful to make things um, more legible, but um, you know also potentially very dangerous. to so sort of understanding, you know, you mentioned out uh, of post culture, the illegible margin. You know, is there there oftentimes there's sort of a gap of things that aren't legible that can be taken advantage of because they they're better they're better off staying illegible. Like like what? I think like, relationships are one uh, interesting one that I think about a lot. Like. And, you know, you can't quantify it in the way that you could say, you know, I don't know, quantify the dollars in your bank account or something. Uh, but it, like, has some value, both at, like, a social level, human or social creatures, you want to have friends. It has, you know, like, career value. Um, you know, someone, you know, in a sense, you could say that someone that has a lot of very strong relationships with important people is, is you know, quote, unquote, wealthier than someone that might have more, like, legible assets, um, if you want to think about it in sort of those those broad terms, so those sorts of areas where you're sort of saying like there's value here, but this value is like very difficult to measure uh, and, you know, make legible in, in some sort of, some sort of specific way. Yeah. And this gets, I want to bring this up because it gets at some of the biggest pushbacks of, of sort of the markets are eating the world in, in a way. And, and I feel like markets eating the world is more controversial even than and software is eating the world. And I think the two biggest pushbacks are uh, one trying to quantify the unquantifiable. And and when you do, you sort of cheapen it or lessen it. And there's a sort of pressure as to if if you don't quantify it, then you might not pay attention to it. Um, And if you do quantify it, you know, you'll, you'll cheapen it. So an example would be, you know, trying to modify money so that it 
better takes into account social value or, or just trying to get better metrics for things versus not having metrics, but somehow finding a way to prioritize it as is. How do you think about that? That, that you know, it shows up in, in, and this relates to the other pushback people have in marketing in the world, which is it's impossible to internalize all, all the externalities. So, so some place where this shows up is things like education. So you could have ISAs, you know, in education, which you know people are sensitive to, and ISAs in general, because what it, what does it mean to value a person as if they are, you know, on the market, so to speak. But then in education, you might only value things that help for career, and you might not value sort of things that are, you know, spiritually enhancing or, or knowledge for its own sake. So, how do you get at some of these challenges in terms of internalizing externalities and also trying to quantify the unquantifiable? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think that's like one of my when I think about sort of like what my my fears or my worries about the uh, sort of the idea of marketry in the world is, yeah, basically precisely that, right? That you get everything, you know, you make everything hyper legible. I, I guess even the way I think about it more is that, you know, what, when you think about like tail risk and like these you know, black swan events or fat tail events, these, these highly unlikely things, these are usually a product of someone um, or some group or some academic theory. And uh, like the 2008 financial crisis is, is a perfect example of this that, you know, you think you've made everything fully legible and you've accounted for all the variables, uh, but there are still externalities. You know, this is, this is not a closed system. This is an open system uh, that is interacting with other parts of the world. So like, you know, in 2008, what happened is the, uh, the model that all this stuff was based on just assumed house prices in the United States couldn't go down everywhere at the same time. Because if you look, at, you can look at this very robust data set going back to World War II uh, with 65 years of data across all the country. Um, and, you know, it never happened that all the house prices had gone down at the same time. And so that was, that was sort of how the, uh, the model was constructed. So like in a way it doesn't, it makes it worse, right? When you think everything is legible, you know, and, and, and in fact it's, it's not. So yeah, I I'm not sure what the sort of what the solution is. You know, as you mentioned, like making things more legible, you know, can be very powerful. And like even in the case of, uh, I think it was called the, the Gaussian copula formula that the, all the, the mortgage back stuff was based on. I can't remember exactly, but you know, in, in a way it was like, it, it did make, it does make sense at a high level. Okay. We're going to be able to quantify this risk better. And so we can like help more people buy homes uh, you know, that might not be able to afford homes because we can give them, you know, more better interest rates because we're able to diversify away some of the risks. Cause like, Oh, okay. That kind of sounds like a good idea. And it's a win for investors and it's a win for houses. But then obviously it got taken just, you know, much too far with, you know, digestible rate mortgages. And we're just going to give everyone, give everyone people, people that are not credit worthy uh, credit to buy houses because, you know, we think we can use this magical formula on the back end. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's a general, a general solution to that. I think, you know, the people that seem to manage it well seem to just have some understanding of uh, sort of legibility and how that can go wrong. And they build, you know, as long as, as long as sort of your model of the world assumes that you don't have all the information and that everything's not perfectly legible, or you have some, some sort of epistemic humility around whatever the model risk is or, or the assumptions being made, uh, th- then the legibility can be, can be helpful. And let's also talk about centralization versus decentralization and how markets the world affects that. And in theory, you'd imagine more, more decentralization. And in practice, sometimes that happens, but also sometimes you see increasing centralization where, whether it's on a, you know, what the internet did in terms, you know, on a, from a business perspective, but then also uh, from a government perspective, how do you think about centralization versus decentralization and how marketing in the world affects that? 
Yeah, I mean, I guess the the main way I think about it is in terms of um, we we're talking about earlier in, in terms of the selectorate selectorate spectrum that you know for any given system, and I mean system sort of in the very broad sense of the world, you know, could be a company, could be a market, could be your life, whatever. You, you have sort of this trade off between you know efficiency uh, on one end and sort of trust or, or robustness uh, on the other end, and you have to sort of figure out you know where along that that spectrum makes sense, you know, for the, for the nuclear power plant, the, the point of that spectrum that makes sense is probably, you know, much more decentralized, much less efficient, much more robust, you know, for the, uh, you know, most consumer web apps or something that the solution is probably much more centralized, much more efficient, much less robust. So I, I guess that's the way I, I think about it. I think it, yeah, it seems to be very dependent on each sort of, each individual use case or each individual system is going to have, have the own place it falls. I think with the, I guess for me, at least the, I think people tend to tend to bias towards the efficiency side uh, too much, where I tend to bias towards sort of the, the robustness decentralization uh, side more, uh, you know, for all the reasons going back to, um, to sort of like the tail risk black swan offense that, you know, lots of, lots of what looks efficient in the short term is just um, sort of creating risk somewhere off to the side that's going to, uh, blow up in the long term. So, you know, 2008 mortgage-backed securities, I think like for example that, you know, if you ask someone in 2000, most people in 2006 is like, oh, this is great. They figured out this clever new way to help lots of people buy homes and uh, help investors, you know, create a financial asset that they want to invest in. Uh, but it, it really wasn't more efficient, right? It was just uh, creating risk that hadn't yet sort of revealed itself. So I think that that sort of bias um, towards decentralization and robustness is, uh, is my bias because I do think you you get those those tail risk black swan type events. Um, can you give a couple, an example? Yeah, I, mean, I guess the the 2008 is like the the whole mortgage backed securities is the um, is the obvious example. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe in like uh, in financial markets, other ones that you think about are like selling options. You know, so you can like uh, and this is a strategy that. Lots of people have done over the last five to ten years, particularly the last few years. You know, if you if you want to sell, you can sell, or maybe even more generally than selling options, just like selling and uh, selling insurance, right? Uh, you can keep selling that insurance, um, and as long as as long as your models are correct about sort of what the what the risk levels are, and I guess you know, again, this is like in, insurance was was part of the problem in two thousand eight, right? They had these particular models of what the what the levels of risk were across this basket and those, those models of risk turned to be wrong, turned out to be wrong um, in large part because um, sort of those models were supplying the, the level of risk became an input into the model. So I guess the thing I've been talking to people lately about in, uh, in sort of options is like option traders or, or people in the markets will look at realized volatility in terms of the, the price of options and they say, oh, like realized volatility is low. And so we can, uh, we can sell lots of options and collect those premiums. Um, and that it's, uh, you know, I guess maybe the famous example of this is um, long-term capital management, but, you know, you can pick up, pick up pennies or pick up nickels in front of a bulldozer uh, for a really long time uh, until you can't and the bulldozer runs you over. Um, and so I think there's, that's one of the sort of the challenges with legibility. Sometimes it can be very clear how to pick up the, the pennies in front of the bulldozer and how this looks like, oh, this is like free money. What a great idea. But you're, you're sort of accumulating risk somewhere else. Yeah. I sort of see a couple visions of the world in, in the crypto community. One is sort of this liberal 
you know, radicalism idea with, you know, Glenwell and Vitalik, et cetera, trying to do sort of new creative products around the commons and socializing uh, the positives and, and the negatives. And, and then there's also the sort of opposite sort of neo-reactionary. I feel like more of the charter city movement along balance, you know, aligns with, with that movement where basically right now we have a, a lot of, or we have voice, but exit is really hard. And yeah. CBD, whereas this would be the opposite that, you know, governments would look more like Apple and Google and that you don't, you don't have voice, but you can just switch. If you don't like your iPhone, you get Android. If you don't like Android, you, you can get iPhone you, or you can get some other phone. How, how do you think about that? I guess, yeah, my, my bias is probably more on sort of the creating the option for exit is a better way. Actually, I, I read Exit Voice and Loyalty is the, the book that's based on. Um, I, I read it a few months ago and sort of like his general point that I, I guess doesn't get brought up in the discussion is generally political scientists tend to think too much about voice and not enough about exit and economists tend to think too much about, you know, economists are just more generally like the private sector tends to think, you know, too much about exit and, and not enough uh, voice. And that's what it makes sense to me. So sort of on the, the political science side, you know, how can we do more exit um, instead of more voice, but then also sort of on the, the private sector or the business side, you know, how can you sort of incorporate voice, voice more instead of uh, just exit? Yeah, I should uh, I should check out that book. And is it because you don't think the liberal radicalism stuff is, is feasible or because like what do you think about some of these commons projects that are trying to sort of socialize the the gains and losses across a wider population? Yeah, I guess that it's it's a feasibility. A lot of this stuff sounds good in theory. I guess I have um, I always have sort of like legibility concerns about sort of like both um, ideas of the things because you know obviously like if you know, oh, now we think we've, we've accounted for all the externalities. We've, you know, socialized the, uh, the gains or whatever, but, um, you know, you don't always, you don't always do that. And then, yeah, I guess that's just like my sense about sort of like the nature of human nature and politics is that like, once you, that, you know, the nature of these systems is to become more centralized over time as a way for people to consolidate power. And like, that's, that's the clear trend. So like a lot of these things sound very compelling, uh, in theory, but like, it's not clear, like why, you know, like, uh, like the idea of sort of the, I think it's the harbinger tax, right. That you're going to like, everyone sort of like publishes, you put a price for any real estate you own. Uh, and then it, at any point, you know, over the course of a year, you have to pay taxes on that amount and then someone can come buy it. Right. So you're incentivized. Well, okay. I want to put a high enough number that like, so I don't want someone to come buy it uh, from under me for nothing, but you know, the higher number I put, you know, the more taxes I have to pay. So like, I guess like in, in theory that, I see how that, that sort of makes sense. Like in practice, I don't, I don't really see like why anyone, like what, you know, what, what politician is going to enhance their career by supporting that, that kind of thing. Like it's not, it's not super obvious to me. And then I don't, I, yeah, I guess I really just wonder again, going back to like the eligibility idea, like uh, anytime you hear sort of this like grand utopian scheme, uh, I, I just, I'm always nervous about, you know, is there some sort of risk uh, are there some sort of like externalities being created here that are actually being made worse, worse by this than in sort of the the present system? So uh, yeah, I, I guess it would be I'd be interested to see this stuff tried on very you know, and I think this is what's interesting about sort of the special economic zones and charter cities and all this is like trying these things on like hyper local scales where things can go badly in small ways uh, as opposed to to trying them on on yeah massive scales. And to give a bit more context on some of the Glen Wild stuff, he's trying to incorporate markets, in, uh, but in sort of very unique ways uh, to things like uh, housing or things like voting or things like immigration. 
uh, while still use, working with governments, but in more market-driven ways with, with an intent to increase inclusivity and, and equality and that sort of, it was in stark contrast to sort of the David Friedman, you know, anarchy, which is a vision, which is, hey, markets run the world, there, there, are, there are no states. Yeah, my question is always just like once you, like who defines, how do you measure it and who defines what fair is? And that's, you know, that's a very hard problem to solve. And when you solve that problem politically, uh, it, you know, it, it rarely seems to work out well. Right. And because politics has market failures of its own. Right. And do you want to get into what those are really briefly? Uh, the market failures of politics? Or, or the, um, like you, you mentioned a little bit, CO2, like I guess the um, structural failures that, that governments or politics, bring, the principal agent problem as it relates to it. I, I, I think it's probably shaped my thinking most on this. There's a book, it came out of a revolution called uh, Democracy for Realist. Um, I forget the author's name, political science thing, but sort of goes through sort of very, very data-driven sort of uh, examination of like how uh, how democracies actually work. Uh, and basically his, you know, I think the, the general, he calls it sort of the folk theory of democracy. He's like, oh, well, if we just give, uh, you know, more power to the people, um, you know, we sort of increase the, the democratic service area, we'll get, you know, better outcomes, people will vote for their interest. And, you know, everyone will sort of be better off and this will be a, a fair system. Uh, and like in practice, basically, what he says is like the, the main things that drive, you know, electoral outcomes in a democracy are uh, one, like the state of the economy and two, uh, identity politics and whether, you know, people relate to, you know, whoever the uh, the person is. So it's something, you know, if you go back and you look at uh, data voting on Catholics, Catholics uh, were overwhelmingly Republican uh, in the United States leading up to um, JFK being elected. And then in that election, there was a massive switch where something, you know, instead of having 20% of the vote, uh, Catholic vote go Democrat, it was something like 80% of the Catholic vote because uh, JFK was the first um, you know, major Catholic candidate to run for president, at least the, the first that was elected, as far as I know. So, yeah, like you know, in in practice, uh, one of the challenges with even like democratic po- uh, politics is almost like an information processing problem. You know, I uh, I just I, the amount of energy and time it would take for me to fully understand all the issues, you know, related to the people I'm voting for. I just yeah, it's it's huge. Like, there's just no uh, way. And so, you know, you get this this principal agent problem uh, where, you know, the politicians aren't necessarily incentivized to do the right thing. You know, if you knew, if, if voters knew all the information, because uh, in practice voters don't um, and, and, you know, it would be very difficult for them to, to fully understand it. Totally. And I want to close with sort of just touching on some of the, the biggest critiques of, of marketing in the world from a, from a macro perspective or, or the biggest sort of questions that, that people have. One is, when markets eat the world, what does that mean for values that that aren't, inter, uh, you know, quantified by the market? Like things like community, things like you know, connection, you know, are uh, are values other, otherwise? You know, Adam Smith said that capitalism would only work with very strong moral fabric. So how do we how do we have that, or how do markets intersect with that? That that's one. Two, what what markets mean for inequality? Because uh, they or how we navigate the inequality that markets tend to increase while also increasing prosperity for, for everybody because the rich getting richer faster than the poor get richer. And then three, you know, what do you believe is, is, is the role of government uh, moving forward or the, the optimal role of government? So uh, on the values point, yeah, I think that's really hard. I mean, it goes back to you know, what we talked about earlier and uh, in terms of um, 
legibility. And I think there's an interesting, I want to say I read it like in college at some point for a class and I, I've been trying to find it and I, I can't, but it sort of talked about that people who stayed uh, in the area where they grew up tended to have much stronger social ties um, and sort of more of a, a kinship, but also sort of a better community group, but lower socioeconomic advancement. Whereas people that tended to immigrate, um, I think this was within the United States. You know, if you, if you were born in a uh, rural county in Mississippi and you stayed there, you tend to have sort of more, more social ties, but, you know, lower socioeconomic prospects. And then vice versa, if you, if you um, immigrated to a larger city or, you know, somewhere there's more opportunity, you have, you know, greater socioeconomic opportunities, but you know, sort of less, less of that community built in. And I think that's, you know, it seems to be sort of anecdotally true. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I think that, I think that's a very valid concern. It's like not clear to me how that plays out, I guess, going back to the way I think about the world is more sort of a, a technological determinist uh, perspective. And so, you know, I think that, you know, if you, if you think of it that way, that this trend is happening and, you know, there will be some good things and some bad things that are, that are implications of that. So, yeah, I, I, that seems to be a, a very individual thing of, you know, how do, how do people sort of like reestablish those communities and, you know, what's, you know, do you, what sacrifices are you willing to make? Do you, you know, slow down your advancement, your job to take time to spend time with your family or, uh, or friends or, or whatever on the inequality question. Yeah. I think sort of like similar to like a very sort of wicked problem um, that I don't have any, any clear answers to. I've read, I like Neil Stevenson, the sci-fi author's books. And I feel like all his books sort of like imagine this, like there's always like hyperinflation and it's almost like a digital feudalism era of uh, you know, in um, Snow Crash. He calls like Mr. Lee's greater Hong Kong is like uh, Southern California. Like this like Hong Kong billionaire magnate has like bought Southern California from like the bankrupt U.S. government and like now runs it as his like private entity in this like sort of like a digital feudal way. So I was like, think of the idea of like, uh, like Mr. Bezos's greater Hong Kong uh, or something like, is that, is that the way things are trending? Um, and yeah, and again, I don't, I don't have any like great answers to that question. I think that like, the one thing on the inequality, I think that that seems to sometimes get missed, at least from what I've seen is just uh, if you think about, you know, marketing the world over the last 30 or 40 years, inequality within countries is up. Uh, but inequality across countries uh, is down. And, you know, most of that's driven by jobs moving from developed countries in the West and U.S. and Europe to, you know, China in particular, but uh, Asia more broadly. So the sort of global inequality is down, but but in-country inequality is, is up, uh, I think, because, you know, because market in the world, because of sort of the, uh, the broader global order that, you know, Apple manufactures in China and you have all this, the stuff that's, that's moved overseas, you know, is that good? Is that bad? What are the trade-offs? You know, certainly many billions of people lift out of poverty uh, seems like a good thing. And like, you know, can you, do you get that if you don't um, sort of end up with the moving those sort of like manufacturing roles overseas? Is there a way to get both? You know, I, I, I don't know, but that seems like a, a sticky problem. And it seems like there is probably some fundamental uh, trade-off there that it's hard to get, uh, get like both pieces of that puzzle at the same time. And then remind me of your third question. Uh, the what do you believe is the ideal role of of government? Like where would you differ from David Friedman, for example, if at all? Like in terms of prisons, the legal system, you know, things like that. Um, yeah, I guess I like a very high level. I I, I usually refer to myself as like a two thirds libertarian. Uh, I think I got that Tyler Cowen. I think he called himself like a two third utilitarian or something. I thought that was clever. And I, I guess that's the way. Like my my sort of like default is like 
it should probably be done in the market. Uh, and that's probably like the good starting point. Uh, but there are like, I think clearly some market failures where uh, it makes sense for uh, government intervenes. So like you know, enforcing property rights, uh, the court system seems like a very, a very sort of fundamental one. Uh, I have, I guess I have, I, to be honest, I haven't thought the whole sort of like anarcho-capitalism thing is uh, a bit beyond me. I have sort of thought, thought deeply about that. So I think you know, there, there does seem to be some role, a clear role for governments. There are such things as, as market failures from asymmetric information or externalities or, or market power. But I think the, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to calculate the cost of those things. And sometimes the cost of those things, you know, just, uh, sort of becomes invisible. I know I was, Peter Thiel, I don't know if you were talking about the idea of like sort of libertarians focusing too much on um, money and the gold standard and all that kind of thing. Like, would it, would it be better for the economy to uh, move back to the gold standard or would it be better, you know, to, to, to end government power over money or just to like get rid of, you know, the massive tangled regulation that affects, you know, like you know, healthcare, uh, education, financial services probably leads to like lots of rent seeking. Uh, without any any value being created, and that seems like a uh, a very reasonable critique to me. Do you think we'll move in a world that has less uh, sort of dictators or, or government centralization than than we do now, or a world that has more? I don't know. Yeah, in the short term, it certainly seems like things are moving, you know, away from globalism towards nationalism and uh, sort of that consolidation of of power in in some ways. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think I guess going back to sort of like the idea of digital feudalism, I don't, I don't know how you want to, uh, depends how you sort of like look at that, that scenario in a way there's like lots of, you know, theoretically, you know, greater exit, uh, potential people can move, but perhaps also, you know, I don't know, maybe greater inequality. I'm, I'm not sure what that looks like. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I have a good answer for that. Yeah. It, it's interesting. I, I've, I've read this book uh, a few times, non-zero by Robert Wright, which basically says that history has a, a direction, not just direction, but a moral direction towards more and more progress and in- inclusiveness and and globalization, most importantly. And our options are either globalize effectively or chaos or, or World War Four. Um, there's there's no going back to more um, local, regional, like you know, a hundred Israel's or a hundred Norways, uh, so to speak. And I'm curious if that's true. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I always wonder. Like, I mean, I know that. Nassim Taleb and Steven Pinker, I feel like I've gotten in a bunch of Twitter fights about this, but like, I think that's, you know, the, yeah, I think that, I guess there's the, I think that's, that's sort of like the, the view from the enlightenment onward that things are getting better and there's, there's persistent progress. And, you know, is that, is that because, you know, going back to, you know, they have tail risk and like externalities, like, you know, have we just created, you know, if you, if it was, uh, you know, 1909 and you were, you know, we were talking about this in the recording, it's like, oh, like, you know, things have been peaceful for so long in most countries and everything looks good. And da, da, da. and then, you know, starting with, you know, and, you know, even you had a much more, you had a much more sort of global order in um, 1909 than you did in, in 1930 that the, the first world war came and, you know, global markets um, sort of started to fracture and, and move back into more, or regional, you know, the U.S. was very slow to get involved in World War II because they sort of saw themselves as isolationists and we don't want to deal with all this Europe crap and they're always getting in wars and, and all that. So, I, you, know, you know, that seems like a plausible a plausible thing that could happen, though. Yeah, again, it's like with, with this sort of like macro stuff, it's so hard to, to do anything that looks like a pro- uh, prediction. Totally. So what do you think are the, you know, moving forward, 
uh, in the markets eating the world? Like, what, what, what do you think is going to, what are the biggest questions you have or that you think we are going to collectively answer in the, in the year or coming years ahead in terms of how this theory plays out? Uh, I mean, I guess what I'm sort of watching the most is, um, yeah, just sort of how the, the crypto space evolves and sort of like what, what ends up being possible there. Like, I think, yeah, you know, I see things could be two years away or 20 years away or, uh, an eternity away. And it's still not, not super clear to me in terms of sort of the, the impact those things can have on, on markets and, um, you know, how big that impact is and how soon it comes, um, yeah, I think the same age I mentioned earlier. I think that sort of the special economic zones and uh, charter cities is is interesting, um, and seems to be a lot of momentum there, uh, or at least some momentum and and things trending in in that direction. And then, uh, yeah, like what is you know what is the the state of the state of the marketplace uh, on the internet today? You know, are we are we at a stage where that's sort of atrophied, and you have these walled gardens that have um, sort of killed off everyone else or, you know, either, uh, you know, acquiring or destroying anyone before they sort of can step in or is there, is there more space to expand there? And, and do we have any stances on what a, what a framework for look like for when markets shouldn't eat the entire world? For example, healthcare. Obviously there's a lot of things in healthcare that would benefit from, from having markets because we, we really don't have any, but you know, if it was hundred percent market driven, there'd also be a lot of people who would, <laughs> who would just die and or who wouldn't get treated. Any, any framework for how, how we should think about, you know, how, how markets should and shouldn't eat the world, something like healthcare? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess my sense is it's mostly, it's kind of, is it, it's kind of like an economics politics question. Like in, you know, like the, in, like the reason sort of social security, and I guess uh, you could put like Medicaid, Medicaid, Medicare, social security. Uh, it's like, like everyone agrees that they're broken, and I, I haven't talked to anyone like under 40 years of age that thinks they will see a dime of their social security money. Uh, Cause it's just like, you know, that it's incredibly difficult to make the math work out where like all these liabilities are going to be going to be funded. But uh, it's like never, like no one will get reelected by saying we're going to stop paying out your social security uh, or Medicaid. So, you know, I, and I, I don't understand, I don't know the situation of healthcare and sort of like, other countries, but yeah, it just seems to be something like that intersection of sort of, um, you know, politics and, and economics. Like I think the, if the, the social security, Medicare, Medicaid thing in, in the United States, like it seems like it's going to, the can is just going to get keep getting kicked down the road until like uh, there's some sort of like crisis. Like there's not going to be any sort of like um, gradual reform. And I, I, I guess that, that kind of stinks from respect to it. Like it would be better to have some sort of like gradual reform so you could actually continue to, continue to provide those services to uh, like people that really needed them and figure out how to allocate those resources more effectively. But yeah, I don't, I don't know that, that, yeah, the politics economics sort of intersection seems to be, seems to be where it will happen, but I'm not, I'm not sure what that looks like. Taylor, this has been a fantastic episode for, for people who want to go deeper uh, on your work, uh, marketing the world and, and beyond. Where might you point them? So, yeah, I have a post called Marketing the World. If you Google Marketing the World, it'll pop up. Uh, and then at Twitter, I'm Taylor Pearson, M-E, and my URL is taylorpearson.me. So either Twitter is usually the best way to get a hold of me. Awesome. Uh, Taylor, thanks so much for coming to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 